This week on the Dragazine Podcast, we talked to the president of PRI, Dr. Jamie Meyer, about his racing past, getting the Copo program open, and what is coming to PRI this year. So, pull those belts tight, get ready to put in the beams. The Dragazine Podcast starts now. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dragazine Podcast. I'm your host, Senior Associate Editor Brian Wagner. This week, Dr. Jamie Meyer from the PRI Show joins us. He's the president of PRI, used to work at GM, and is total, total gearhead, background in drag racing. It's really interesting to hear kind of what his path has taken and what he's got planned for the PRI in the future. So uh, without further ado, let's get this drag racing party started. All right, my guest this week on the podcast is the president of PRI, Dr. Jamie Meyer. Dr. Jamie, what's going on? Hey, Brian, thank you so much. Uh, thrilled to be with you this morning. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's really cool to see, you know, kind of over the years, I've always seen you hanging out at PRI at the Chevrolet Performance booth and, you know, seeing you at NMC events and stuff like that. So it's awesome to see someone helming the show at PRI that's, you know, all about the drag racing. Well, yeah, I, look, I'm a longtime uh, fan of drag racing. Uh, you know, I've listened to you talk on your podcast before just about how early on we get influenced and it just changes our lives. And uh, I had some uh, stock car background with my grandfather, but uh, I've just been a lifelong drag racing fan. And uh, I think you can see that throughout my career. And I'm looking forward to carrying that on at PRI and expanding all the good work that's going on there. Yeah, that's I, I follow fall myself under the uh, banner of that I like anything loud, fast, and dangerous. So you know any form of motorsports I'm a fan of. But the uh, the life I was raised in was within uh, within drag racing. It definitely kind of I think gives me a fun view on all forms of motorsports because drag racing is just its own interesting animal amongst all other motorsports. Yeah, it's a it's a really pure form. Uh, you know, very. I think the first street race was with uh, Henry Ford in a Model A and a and a horse at some point on probably on Woodward Ave here in Detroit. But uh, I uh, I grew up in the mid to late '80s. Uh, I got hooked on Cars Illustrated and the work from uh, Tony DeFeo and Neil Van Opry. I'm a, I definitely am a disciple of their work, uh, and just went to my local drag strip early on, which at the time was uh, New York International Raceway Park in Western New York. That's now Empire Dragway. Uh, and fell in love with it. And I, I really never competed till I got out of college. And uh, my parents had given me an 86 GT Mustang for my high school graduation. And I started racing that in the early 90s. Uh, and the Mustang thing was super hot. Got hooked up with uh, Fun Ford Weekend, Bill Alexander Days started announcing, uh, worked on all but the first World Ford Challenge uh, events in that capacity. And uh, in 96, Steve Wolcott and James Lawrence came calling, and I helped them uh, form the NMRA and announced and was the first editor of Race Pages magazine. So uh, I've been doing all that as a side hustle up until 2005, and uh, GM came calling. So, yeah, man, I've, I've had it bad for a long time. And – it's funny how you find different ways like people don't realize that are not into racing and cars just how much it influences your life and when you're given that opportunity to make motorsports a way to not only be your passion your hobby but the way that you earn your living it's like it's a it's I always tell people it's still a job but it's a dream job because even on your worst day you have to remind yourself I get to play race car. You know, that's what I get paid to do. And that's what really kind of reels you back in and makes you, you know, keep that fire burning. Yeah, I, I really appreciate those comments, you know, and I, I say something similar that, um, you know, when you're at the drag strip and, you, and this is coming from uh, like a sanctioning body point of view or for, from someone producing a show or a track owner, but for the most part, you're right. When people are at the drag strip or at the racetrack, they're, they're really at their best. And I remind marketing folks all the time, you know, look, those folks come to your drag strip or they're coming out to spend time around your product. This is their vacation time. This is what they've been looking forward to for weeks or months or years. Uh, and they're at their best. They're super excited to be around you. So, you know, it's special for them. They always make it special for them. You know, it, it's funny. I tell people I, I refer to my previous life as when I was a civilian, not working in the uh, the racing industry. That I would most of the time use my PTO 
to go to the track to either cover events, you know, as my side gig for drag scene or to help out Ray Litz with his car crewing. And that was literally like my first experience getting paid to play race car. And it was just, like you said, I mean, that's the best way to put it is it's at your best. That's what you, you're choosing to be there and you want to have fun. And it's, it's an awesome way to spend time, you know, and that's, that's a lot about really the future of motorsports, right? Is how do we share that experience? It's through podcasts like this or through written word, however that shows up, but you know, how do you get the kids or the, the 20 year olds that first time exposure of, wow, you know, there are people competing in motorized vehicles or electric power vehicles, whatever we're going to be racing uh, and it's a cool thing. I want to hang out. I want to spend more time with those people. Uh, and that's a big part of what's, what's my, my vision is, is as we get into that conversation, but where we're going to head as a community. Now, you know, my dad was my big influence with drag racing and you know, he was a science health math teacher and he actually would bring motorsports into the classroom, you know, when he was a middle school teacher yeah. to expose kids as a fun way to make science fun. And I think, in my opinion, that's a huge boat we are missing in the motorsports industry in general. Because imagine, you know, kids, kids are kids, you know, school isn't exactly what they're into. You got to find a way to hook them, to educate them. So imagine for a science, you know, science, math, that all the different disciplines, those STEM disciplines, you could bring motorsports in. And, you know, instead of a typical day where they're going to get lectured about, you know, force plus mass and, you know, all that stuff where they get to go out and see a race car and hear a race car fire up that right there, that kind of jarring experience will pull them into it because it's it's different than what's on their phone and what they've seen. It's, it's a tangible experience. Yeah, I love it. I'm, I'm thinking about all the people that are going to listen to this and they're going to be jealous that your dad didn't teach them a few things in, in high school, right? Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, no, I love it. You know, and Hey, look, um, you know, folks that, that listen to us, I, I always say, look, if there's a chance for you to take your neighbor or your neighbor's kid out to the racetrack with you, like invite them, invite them into your world and show them why you love this so much. That goes so far, you know, man. Oh, totally. My, one of my good friends, a guy who keeps his dragster at my house, we, uh, he used to keep it at his own place in his enclosed trailer and he had a big party him and his wife every year where they'd have their friends over and whatnot like there'd be a couple hundred people there the biggest attraction to this party besides the barbecue was rick would fire up his dragster and people would lose their minds and there would be people that would get into go like they'd be like wait we can actually see this he's like yeah come to the track sometime or go to the track and it was like that right there just that experience is what drives people to racing and we need to do that more as fans and partakers in the sport? You know, there, there's nothing you, you made me think about is, uh, you know, at, at General Motors, I had, you know, somewhere around 60 or 70 engineers around me working on performance parts and performance vehicles. Uh, and I had folks ask me, you know, well, what does it take to be a performance engineer at GM or, you know, consider any big OEM or big aftermarket company? And, and I would say, well, you know, we kind of assume that you're an excellent student, right? We, we just assume you've made it to the top of your engineering class and you're just excellent at what you do. But what separates those people is what their passion is. And I, I'm going to tell you right now, the people that hire performance engineers are looking for the experience on the SAE team. They're looking for your own race team that you run with your friends or your family on the weekends. And, and, and you know this, and I hope everybody knows that there, there's no nine to five job anymore. We're going to be doing these jobs, you know, really it's, it's all day long. Right. So, uh, you got to love it and it's just got to be part of you. And, and that's what makes people great in these industries and these engineering uh, positions. So I share that for what it's worth to you and your listeners. Oh yeah. And that's, and I think that harkens the way that I, I look at this job and a lot of other people that want to be excellent at it in the motorsports industry is, you don't really get technically time off. You have to constantly be 
looking, at least on the media side, for the next story, things to talk about and whatnot. And then I think that translates onto the like the engineering side and like that side of things is that the people I know that work in the industry that are developing parts work for race teams, their minds never shut off. They think of stuff at the craziest times, they jot it down, and then, you know, in the shop the next morning, they're trying to make their vision a reality. And I think that's what really, again, makes motorsports people so interesting is just that the fire never goes out. They're always trying to find a way to go faster. Yeah, it's an incredibly intelligent group of people. In fact, you know, when, when I was running the floor for Chevrolet at the PRI show, uh, we would staff it differently because the people that show up at, at the PRI show in Indianapolis in December have an agenda. They have a really hardcore lifestyle and they want to know the deepest secrets about the cylinder head or the camshaft or whatever part they're looking at because there's real intent and, and they've done their homework in an incredibly intelligent group of people. We'll get more into the whole PRI thing in a minute because I'm very yeah. passionate about that myself. But, the, you know, it kind of sparked something I wanted to talk about, too, we talked about in the the pre-call, is the COPO. One of the coolest things I ever got to do was tour the COPO's facility and see how those cars were built, which was amazing. And, you know, the COPO, you know, just those letters harken back to the most pure days of performance factory-backed drag racing and you were kind of the architect that helped bring about this new era of Copo performance, you know, kind of tell the story behind that one. Well, no, I, I appreciate it. And I really appreciate your passion toward the product. Um, I had a great run uh, at General Motors, spent almost 15 years there, uh, worked on a lot of cool projects, was on the trade engine side of the business, you know, helped launch the LSX block, uh, super into the LS portfolio of engines, uh, and, and I was on the Camaro and the Corvette teams on the production car side, so I was given input on what the market wanted. But, you know, far and away, uh, bringing back the Copo Camaro uh, was my proudest uh, achievement at General Motors. Uh, so, you know, we were watching what Jesse Kershaw was doing with the Cobra Jets. You know, Dodge was sniffing around with the drag packs and, and about ready to go. Uh, and I had written several internal documents about the strategic positioning of General Motors and, and what we should do. Uh, you know, I, I trademarked Copo for GM. That was kind of languishing at the time. No one had protected that brand, believe it or not. So, you know, I was setting it up. It took a couple of years. And then eventually, uh, once we saw Ford with uh, so much success in the market, uh, and again, you know, Jesse and I were uh, – friends and enemies at the same time, full respect for what he did at Ford uh, and really allowed the OEMs to see what was possible in stock eliminator. But there was a small group of engineers on the GM racing side. Uh, they worked with Mike Pastalny who built the prototype. Uh, and, and then I think, I think what would be interesting for your listeners is to, you know, the mindset of, okay, we've got a prototype. It runs, it's fast. We've shown it. We want to go into production. You know, of course, we did 69 a year, which harkens back to the aluminum block, uh, ZL1, uh, Copos. But um, to scale it up, right, to do 69 race cars in a production assembly-type facility, and, and you were there, uh, most people looked at it, and, I, and I'm guilty of this, and said, okay, well, we're going to get 69 Camaros. We're going to blow them apart. They'll do all the fabrication work, and then we get to put them all back together. You know, that's how a hot rodder would do one car at a time. But, you know, Rich Rinke and the team at Turnkey, Mike Lawrence, you know, great group of people, talented group of fabricators. Uh, they put a production mindset to it. So they ordered 69 parts that would then be reassembled, and you go through the whole bomb of a Camaro, 3,000 parts, whatever the list is, and you – you know, you have the yes/no box if you want to order it, but but then you start thinking about well, how do you optimize these things? So you know, one of the small the small things was the rear window was ordered uh, as Z28 glass because that window was a little bit thinner and it shaved a little bit of weight out of the top of the car. And 
that was the kind of mindset that went through the production of, of the Copa Camaro. My side was the marketing and sales. So we had already had a relationship with Barrett Jackson. Sean Finnegan was a great partner with Barrett. He was running uh, a lot of the shows and events for GM. He still runs the SEMA show uh, for GM or Chevrolet Performance, as we would brand it. Uh, and we did we did the Barrett Jackson push. Uh, that uh, really was done to get me an interested list of how many people really want to buy these cars. We had always planned it on selling 69 of them, but we got five or six thousand people the first year, Brian, that wanted to buy a Camaro. And I and I'll pause here, but I want to tell you about some of the phone calls. I sold every one of those cars for the first three and a half years two individuals took individual orders. So that's, that's what it took to get the Copo Camaro up and rolling. Yeah. And when you get to tour the facility, when I was up there, it, to me, it was just amazing to see what goes into those cars. And it's like, you know, usually most racers know what goes into building a car and how long it takes at a chassis shop, watching how, you know, up at turnkey, they took and, you, like you said exactly beautifully it's a production mindset on how everything is done is fascinating to watch the cars go through the steps and then the little touches like how they make it easier to access to pull the tranny out of the car and just everything and how it's done was truly truly amazing and what I thought you, you mentioned the prototype one of the cars that was sitting in the corner was a torn down car that looked like it you know belonged to the junkyard but they said it was actually one of the the first cars that they had that they had to essentially prototype the car off of and just seeing everything that amount of engineering that goes in those cars really you know makes it drives a point home how you know why they perform so well and why they're so amazing yeah well I mean I'm so glad you got the tour of the facility, and, and I don't think Chevy's announced this, but the Copo run is about over. Uh, so, it, you know, there are little things like the the pin positioning of how the vehicles are built down the, the assembly line, those landmarks on the chassis were used to make sure that the straight axle went in exactly the same way in every car. Remember, they were independent suspension cars in production. So, like, you have the, the precision to keep each car the same. They're extremely well-built race cars. And we can argue about the price point, but, but you know, if you build a car at that, at that level to run mid-eights, you're, you're in a six-figure car no matter what. So to do it repeatedly at that level. Oh, especially so. if you're going to go stock or super stock racing to be, to be competitive in those cars and at that level it was funny i was actually when i was out at the race at national trail this weekend for the big jig speed week the i was talking with a couple of the copo owners about the cars and that's one of the things that they like about it is that they just they work they flat out they work and it's the same thing even with the cobra jet cars that the engineering that's been put into these vehicles at this level it's it's fascinating yeah it's, it's awesome and, and look i want to I want to share a couple stories when I was selling these cars, right? It was just amazing. The car hadn't been around for 50 years and it, there was a debate about how we would sell the cars. And ultimately it, it was determined that legally we needed to randomize the list. I had a few units that I could sell each year that I could, I could pick uh, as, you know, from a marketing perspective and, and really, we always picked the race teams because we had to, we had to assure the legacy of the Copa Camaro as a stock eliminator drag car, just, just so everybody hears that real clearly. But, you know, we randomized the list, and and by the second or third day, word had gotten out that I had started calling down the list. We ranked the list, and I literally would just call people right from the top down, and I think I only went through maybe 150 people to sell all 69 cars. But, but a couple of the calls, you know, I'll never forget. I had read the one gentleman's story about how he'd ordered a Copo in 1969 and he was in Vietnam and he'd gotten a issue of hot rod or, or some magazine that talked about the 1969 car, got word back to his family that he wanted the car. So they ordered it for him. The car was being built, and 
as it worked out, his grandmother was going to have to go pick up the car. And the guy was so worried that his grandmother would get hurt in, you know, what was really a five or 600 horsepower race car that he canceled the order. So he had, he had just placed the order and he's telling me the story. And I said, so did you ever get your 69 Copo? And he said, no, I've been waiting 50 years for you to call me. Oh, wow. That's so deep. The, the emotions with these cars, you know, I'll just never forget how these things have touched people's lives. Oh, yeah. that One of the things that the uh, the gentleman told me I interviewed for the uh, for the piece I did was that, you know, you get the guys that bought them to put them in a collection, then you get the guys that bought them to race them. And he said one of the guys literally showed up Friday morning to do, you know, the, the pickup deal and the tour and everything else loaded the car up at the trailer, drove south to Milan Dragway, and immediately threw the car on the track. Like, that was the purpose, and it was immediate when that car was thrown into service. Yeah, and and that that will ultimately drive the value of the collectibles. And they're, that was the balance, right? They were super valuable when they came out. People were selling them for 2X, uh, the, the initial price, but... Yeah, the racers, the guys that are out there racing that Copo Camaro now, setting records inside, that'll always be the legacy of those cars. Oh, it's great. Oh, yeah. And, you know, kind of shifting off the Copo stuff, and, you know, the Chevrolet's been heavily involved with the, the NMCA in different aspects with, you know, the LSX shootout, the LS series, and, you know, the Chevrolet Performance Series, which I got to race in with my car, and I wanted to do a story with that Chevrolet performance series about what it was like to go to one of these events. Cause for years I've been, you know, either behind the camera crewing on a car, but I'd never raced at an NMCA event. So I did, you know, the whole free entry thing. And it was awesome to see how, you know, Chevrolet and even Dodge with their Hemi deal have partnered with the NMCA to make racing like that, much easier for people to get into at these big events and it created a lot of guys that they they did the free race and i was interviewing them in the staging lanes i'm like so what do you think of this And they're like man this is awesome i'm coming back next year you know i want to do open comp or you know true street now because i didn't know this existed and again it goes back to creating creating customers well look uh nmca is just the highest quality of people. You you start with Steve Wolcott, uh, Mike Galimi. Both of them are just dear, dear friends of mine. Uh, Jim Camposano on that team. Raleigh Miller, who's just an amazing architect of uh, racing. Uh, and Gene Bergstrom, who I'm, I'm working with very closely day-to-day right now on a PRI program. Uh, yeah, look, uh, when, when Steve and at the time uh, James Lawrence – uh, was still owner uh, in Pro Media when they bought NMCA. Um, you know, I I transitioned over and helped announce some of those races the first couple of years. And, and like you're saying, it's just a, a great mix of vehicles. You've got the latest in technology and in, in the top classes, and then you've got some of the nostalgia classes, which you know are exactly what we're talking about. You know, you'll see Copo Camaros and Hemicudas and uh, Thunderbolts in action. You know, an NMCA race. True Street is just this wild mix of streetcars. Uh, I think I'm uh, I'm scheduled to be at the US 131 event, uh, depending on how that shapes up. But I'll I'll take my Z06 out and uh, I might mix it up with you in uh, the True Street class or something like that. Yeah, I I definitely I actually I had the Norwalk event circled on my calendar was going to be when I brought my Trans Am back out, but. Uh... It unfortunately decided to experience a high energy engine disassembly at some point last year when we were working on it. So that that wasn't going to happen. But, you know, I, I think what the NMCA really brings to the table is just that big mixture of different kinds of racing to expose people to. And I think that's what we need more of in drag racing is these even if it's on like a, a Friday night shootout program. Get fans in the stands to check out a lot of different stuff. You got your hook class, like a pro mod to bring, you know, the ooh and ah class. But then you sell them on the sport and everything else with, like you said, the variety of other cars that are there. Well, what, yeah, and it transcends that crowd, right? So if you're there just to be entertained, you've got 
big crazy cars that do things that cars shouldn't be able to do. But but then you've got more street oriented classes where, you know, if you've got a, a person in the stands who has has built up a street car uh, and they're thinking about, you know, I might want to try the sport of drag racing, they'll get hooked. I mean, NMCA is a wonderful place to start your drag racing career and you can set your goal, you know, hey, I'm only going to go to a couple of races or I'm going to go win a championship and you can scale what your budget and what your time allows. Oh, yeah. And I, I think that, you know, both the pro media entities, the NMRA does the same thing because you go to an NMRA event and the true street class is just it's always one of my favorite to check out because it's, you know, it's like Forrest Gump says it's a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. You're going to get some some basic street cars and then you never know when someone's going to roll up with a, you know, a nasty Fox body Mustang and crack off a seven second pass in a street car. And that's again, people see that they're like, wow, you can you can do that here. Yeah, you know, bring you got you got a Ford, you know, Mustang GT. Roll it up in the lanes, pay your entry fee, pay the tech card, we'll throw a number on it. You can do this, right? It's perfect, and I think that's what makes drag racing so alluring, right? Is that at at multiple levels you can compete. If you've got a stock vehicle, you can find a home, or you can dedicate your entire life to going fast uh, with the latest technology, and and you can find a home in drag racing. Um, yeah, I love it. I, obviously, I'm I'm a huge fan of NMRA. Was proud to help start that organization uh, with Steve Wolcott and James Lawrence. I, you know what, though, Brian, you're you're. It pains me to think about Fox Body Mustangs as classic vehicles. Now you're making me feel old. I have to admit. <laughs> it it's it, but you know fear not though. Now that it. I tell people that now that the fourth gen F body is becoming the new Fox body Mustang because they're relatively affordable and you can do almost anything with them. And I've got two of them sitting in my shop now. So I'm, I'm fast approaching that myself now. Yeah. There's some great platforms out there and uh, folks can get into the sport affordably uh, and away you go, you know, so it's, Great time to be in the cars. That's what Mike Galimi and I always say. Oh, yeah. What further drives that home is now that you can go to a dealership, and if you have enough cash or a healthy enough line of credit, it's like, well, how fast do you want to go, and how many seats do you want to have? Do you want to have you know, a 10, 9, 10-second 10 Corvette? Do you want a Hemi car? Do you want a Mustang? It, it blows me away that, you know, essentially the – the big three forced the NHRA to rewrite their rule book by putting out cars from the factory that were so safe and so incredibly fast. Yeah, it, it really is an amazing time to be in the cars. And, you know, maybe younger folks just take it for granted that they could go buy a, a 700 horsepower a Dodge product or a 750 horsepower Chevy, you know, whatever, uh, whatever they want. Uh, or some of the foreign vehicles are unbelievable. So, um, yeah, look, um, the more we share these experiences, the more times that we talk about drag racing in a positive light, uh, the more TV, uh, the more you uh, choose to go to the drag strip instead of the baseball field, uh, you know, that's the direction we need to go as a community. Oh, yeah, and, you know, what you when you're stuck on some of these long road trips, you start thinking about well, what would I do if, and you know, you, well, a couple of years ago, there was huge lottery money involved and you know, one of those big mega millions things. My wife asked me, she goes, if we won the lottery, what car would you buy? You know, what would you drive every day? So I would go find a CTSV wagon, put a gnarly cam in it, some exhaust pulley, you know, and have a BMW crushing supercar that could haul what I need to the, you know, to do photo shoots and smile the whole time. Oh, they're awesome. Yeah. You can pick a platform uh, but, you know, and I look, I have sat in the room uh, with, with the Cadillac team talking about the future of the V cars, uh, CTSV, uh, that's out right now is unbelievable vehicle. Uh, Brandon Vivian's a chief engineer over those vehicles and has just done a heck of a job. Tony, Tony Roma, uh, Brandon's a chief, the executive chief engineer. Tony Roma's the, the chief engineer on the V cars, uh, and they're passionate guys. They're road racers on the weekends, not drag racers, but uh, the capabilities of those vehicles speak to drag racing uh, in a way no no other luxury car does. 
Oh, yeah. And again, it, it folds it all back into, you know, most drag racers are, they they love the sport to the point of financial ruin. And, you know, you, you start really looking at the, the different areas of the sport. And I know that you, you were at the, the recent race at Indy, which was, you know, the whole Nitro show. And then I, yeah, I didn't get to go to that one, but I got to go to the big sportsman race here locally. And they had over 650 cars out here at trails for that double header race. It was nuts. It was it was great to see that the sport is doing so well even in these crazy times. Yeah, look, I love the success, uh, and and PRI is uh, watching and celebrating when we have tracks that have great uh, events like what we're talking about. Uh, we're also very concerned about the tracks that haven't been able to open, and and the owners and their employees who have been, you know. I want to say ruined, but that might be a little too extreme, but have been negatively impacted by the COVID crisis. Um, yeah. And again, collectively as a community, we're, we're working at PRI to try to, uh, as, as our DC office, uh, director of, uh, government affairs, uh, Christian, uh, Robinson says, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So there's, there's a lot of advocacy work going on. Uh, at PRI right now to make sure we've got a seat at the table. And when the local governments are shutting places down or pausing them to reopen, we want to at least have a voice for racers around the country so that more people could enjoy the events you're talking about. And, and I think that's one of the cool things about PRI, you know, the performance racing industry and, you know, the trade show in particular, because a lot of people, you get different views on the social interwebs about how people look at these trade shows and whatnot and to me SEMA I've never been able to go but it's not really I always tell people SEMA is cool but it's not my people PRI is my people because of it's just it's all about the performance and the advocacy you guys do is great as well but just the show itself it's one of those things I tell people I'm like you gotta go just to see all the cool stuff and talk to the people that you need to talk to if you want to figure out how to go fast. Yeah, I, I'm the same way personally. Uh, before I took this position, I, I'm pretty sure my first PRI event was 1998. Uh, I went in a capacity uh, largely like what you're doing right now as a freelance writer uh, working for drag racing magazines and drag racing sanctioning bodies and uh, really just hungry to learn uh, and, and you're right, it brings together the greatest minds in the racing industry. So uh, PRI, the world's leading racing trade show in Indianapolis, uh, December 10. Uh, right now, uh, thanks to the great people in the city of Indianapolis and the state of Indiana, uh, we are still uh, very optimistic that we'll have a show this year. There's a lot of concern around everyone's safety. I'm I'm extremely aware of that, and, and we're monitoring uh, every possible way to keep people safe. Uh, so we're actually probably weekly. We'll start talking to folks uh, very transparently uh, just about what's going on, the things that we're considering, uh, and, and what we can do uh, as a trade show and what the good folks in Indianapolis can do as a town that hosts conventions uh, to keep people safe and to keep uh, keep their peace of mind. Oh, and again, I'm definitely PRI from a media standpoint is three and a half, four days of just it's a blitzkrieg if you're doing it right because there's so much you have to cover, and I attack it a lot differently, and Andrew Wolf does as well. We attack it differently where we want to get as much done as quickly as we can. So we can go check out the stuff that's not on our checklist because that's, to me, what makes PRI so cool is I like to get, you know, my official work done. And then I just like to wander around and just look at all the cool stuff and ask questions, you know. Or you could just sit there and watch a set of, you know, CNC machines work on Machine Row making a set of heads. Yeah, I don't don't think I've ever shared this publicly, but one of my favorite moments – of my year really is because I've always uh, been an exhibitor uh, at, with Chevrolet. Uh, we get early morning access to go in. Uh, and I like to go in two or three hours before the show opens and I'll walk the floor by myself. Uh, and it, 
you know, first of all, the crowds uh, can be kind of intense, uh, at, at least in years past. We'll see what it looks like uh, at PRI this year. We're going to control the flow of folks uh, and, and control the direction. Uh, but for me, yeah, walking those aisles and being able to look at the parts uh, and then you can come back, right, and talk to the people, the real experts, uh, it's it's really like nothing else. You, you've got cars there, but we're not actively working on them. So it's really the greatest bench racing session you can ever be a part of. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, we're very hopeful that the show can go on this year. Uh, we're going to do all that we can to keep people safe and keep it running. Uh, and I know, look, a big part of this is the city of Indianapolis, and I, I can't thank them enough. But uh, as you know, uh, as a veteran of the show, the city is alive with racers. You know, 75,000 racers come in for this event, uh, and they, uh, they eat a lot of steak and uh, talk a lot of race car. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that, uh, you know, Elmo's has the uh, that they definitely circled and you know they put in a triple order of shrimp because they know that they're going to get run over with people wanting that cocktail. That's right. Good. Stop there. You got to stop at uh, all of them. But yeah, it, it's also you know you talk about the people. It's it's about the acknowledgement, right? You think about the award ceremonies that go on, and then you know what I love is we're we're talking about drag racing on this podcast, but it's the mix of all of these motorsports, right? You get a chance to learn from circle track. You get a chance to see IndyCar and NASCAR technology that you might never see anywhere else. Uh, NHRA is a big part of the PRI show. You know, I, I talked with Glenn Cromwell when I was down in the Indy three weeks ago now, uh, but just about what their setup will be like and, and how, we can help NHRA continue what is a great run for them at, at PRI. So, yeah, it's this great mix of people. Uh, you get a chance to share ideas, and, and a lot of business gets done at PRI. You know that. Well, and you mentioned the NHRA setup, and I think that, again, to me, that also t- kind of shows how easy it can be to miss some of the stuff because there's so much going on at PRI is that the NHRA, the cool thing they do is they have that stage and they bring in all the different people they talk to. And you can hear some real, like I parked out there for a while and just listened to some of the interviews of the different people, like the non nitro racers or, you know, the big name racers, they were bringing in what you could, you know, just the interesting personalities and interviews. And then they'd bring in, you know, the big names and they're just, they're a lot more relaxed when they don't have to worry about race stuff. And it presents as a fan, a racing fan, it gives you an opportunity to really kind of see some different sides of racers. You're, you're making me smile. Cause I'm, I'm thinking about how jealous I am, uh, that, that our friends, the Massingales, uh, Judd and Linda and Brian, how they, they set up right across from NHRA, uh, and they get that entertainment, you know, all week long. Smart, uh, so, smartest, smartest people in the room. And school, school of automotive machinists is a great institution. Uh, I'm sure you've talked to those folks before, but we, we love what they do there. Oh, it, and I'm actually, you know, one of the projects I'm building, I'm working with them directly. They're building a, a 427 LS that we're going to put into a, a bracket car. You know, it's our first, you know, James our, Lawrence, our CEO, he beyond passionate about drag racing and he likes to build really fast cars and he likes to hoard race cars. A lot of people don't know that he hoards race cars and he's building another, you know, another LDR car. And we decided it would be fun to build something that was more bracket racing oriented. I got hooked up with the the folks, the great folks from Samtech, and they're actually putting the engine together with a bunch of parts from Dart and whatnot. And again, it, it speaks to just their goal with motorsports performance in general is awesome with how they really want to educate the future of our, our sport. Yeah, they've been on the uh, they've been worried about the kids since the mid mid eighties. That's that school is not new. I don't think people realize how long Judd and Linda have been doing it. And uh, they're really, you know, amazing ambassadors uh, for our, for our industry. Uh, and I, yeah, I love the drag racing passion. I met them on a drag strip, right? I think it was uh, maybe Bradenton many years ago at an NMRA and MCA race, but uh, yeah, they're, they're part of the PRI show, right? So you bring folks like that together. Uh, we're still on track for a thousand exhibitors this year uh, a typical year is 1100 to 1200 so we're within 13 percent of a quote-unquote normal year at pri so 
Uh, we'll see some fluctuation as we come up on the deadline for uh, the display space. But again, uh, I, I want to make sure folks realize we're, you know, safety is going to be first uh, and, and we think we can get there today. It, it's a super fluid situation with the way uh, we have to keep people's safety in mind and the way state health departments run. But uh, there's great signs in Indiana and in Indianapolis specifically. I was at the first NHRA race when they came back. I was super happy for Glenn Cromwell, Brad Gerber, uh, Casey Kohler, uh, some of the folks that had to make some really tough decisions at NHRA. Uh, what they did very well, which I want to make sure that we do at PRI, is they set expectations, right? So if you're going to go to the NHRA event, you're going to have a mask on. You're going to have hand sanitizer. You're going to use it. There's going to be a health screening. You're going to get your temperature checked, and you're going to practice social distancing, and you're going to, you know, the reward is you get to see a, a really great drag race. Uh, so NHRA is up and running, happy to see that. Uh, you know, Indianapolis 500, the end of August goes on. Uh, they've come out with the first goal is 50% capacity, which would be over 100,000 people. Uh, they just corrected that this week, or uh, I guess updated it would be the word. So they're going to be around 25% capacity. Again, placing safety first, first but the race goes on. So we're looking at those uh, indicators, looking at those successes, Plus, plus, the convention center in Indianapolis is up and running. They've had events with as many as 7,000 people at them within the last couple of weeks. So, signs are looking good. We're watching it very closely, but we think we're going to have a great PRI show this year. Yeah, that's it's definitely one of those things that it kind of helps make the world feel a little more normal when you can look forward to things like that and, and know that they're coming. And people are just going to have to understand that, you know, these are the rules we've got to play by. You know, if you know if, if you want to wrestle you got to weigh in and you got to you got to do what is asked of you otherwise we don't get to do all the fun cool stuff we want to do well and look i think racers are uh, some of the most mature people i've ever been around for the most part i'm sure there's some rules makers that are cringing as i say that but you know, um, many many are <laughs> but uh look uh we take safety real seriously in the racing industry, right? And, and everybody knows you get into a fast car, uh, you got to have a cage, you got to have a harness, you got to have a helmet, you got to have a fire jacket. You think about all the money you've spent on safety equipment, but to attend a show like PRI where it sets up your business for the next year or the next decade, depending on, you know, how well things turn out for you, to ask folks to wear a mask, to have them check temperatures, to, to maybe wait in line a little bit longer to get in. You know, I'd like to think we can relate it to the safety equipment we use when we get into a race car. So those are some of the things I'll be talking about as we get uh, closer to showtime. Uh, but, but look, uh, we're going to try real hard to put on a great PRI event this year in December. You know, in a normal year of PRI, what is something you think that a lot of people might not necessarily take full advantage of that they should during the experience of, at the convention? Well, uh, there, two things come to immediate mind. Uh, first of all, there's an entire education program uh, that Dan uh, Schechner runs. Dan is the editor uh, and runs a lot of the content for PRI Magazine. He also produces an amazing series uh, of educational speakers. So we'll have over 25 speakers this year at PRI talking about every uh, aspect of the business from marketing to sales, B2C distribution, you know, how to run a, a race program, how to set up your racetrack, you know, everything you could imagine. So, so watch for that. The other thing, if you're media, if you're a big distribution entity, or if you're a shop that wants to start selling product, not just your labor, um, we have a new product showcase at PRI where every manufacturer shows off their latest and greatest part. That's been going on for a couple years. Uh, just so you know the latest and greatest, that's where you want to go first. You want to go to the new product showcase and just see what these manufacturers are going to roll out for next year. So there's a couple ideas for you. Oh, and the, the educational side 
is amazing. I've never got to go to one of the one of those at PRI because I'm you know busy covering the show. But the I know the the equation I can make to it is I went to the Racer Expo in Chicago a few years ago, and I sat in on one of those. And the first thing that popped in my mind as I'm sitting through this, I'm like, this is awesome. Imagine what it's like, you know, at another show like PRI where they have even more variety and what you can learn at one of these shows through experts. It's something that a lot of people don't realize that knowledge is a lot like parts. It's not always, it's not free. And to have the opportunity to learn from some of these people is something you should not sleep on at all. Well, yeah, I, I can't agree more. I've sat in a couple every year. They've usually tended more toward the marketing side. I, I remember Chad Reynolds last year did a really nice piece on on just social media. You know, what's an influencer? Uh, some basic concepts, but uh, Chad and his panel did a really good job of getting people introduced to um, what I would say are skills that aren't always associated with our industry and how you can take advantage of them. And, and look, we may have a lot of racers listening to this podcast. If you want to be uh, a racer that's known and, and everybody wants to get sponsors and everybody wants to get support, you know, how you market yourself, how you market your team can change the course of, of success on the drag strip. So, I, you know, I say that because I want folks that are the CMO of a big company to realize there's educational programs for them, but individual racers can take advantage of that and, and learn a lot and improve their game. Oh, I, I'm so glad that someone in a position of power is saying this so racers and people will understand that because from a media standpoint, being able to look at how a team markets themselves and if they have good assets, you know, on a Facebook page and Instagram page and they can, you know, share those if we're doing a story makes it so much easier, more attractive for people to want to cover you when you can provide those and you're able to put a good message out there and represent your team well. You know, that's also important too. Yeah, you. I mean, you look at... Uh like Manny Bujinga and I were talking last night uh, about some about his new race car. Uh, there's a team that that shows up, class act, always prepared, carries themselves well, very professional. I would describe it as you know a rather basic but consistent social media presence, but that's a professional. Now Manny doesn't have the time, and I don't really think he has the aptitude, and he just likes the culture and the people that he chooses to race with. But that's a guy who set himself up where if he wanted to go professional because of the investment, but also because of his own personal brand, he could make that leap. He has that, that much value in his personal brand. Not to mention his overall skill set of what he does for a living because Last year, or this year, it lights out when that Mustang had the throttle hang it took out the center concrete divider. Nobody knew what to do. Like, people are like, they're trying to figure out how to get this up. And Manny just rolls up with his construction background and just takes over the scene and saves the day and gets that wall up. And, I was, you know, it, it just kind of brings it home. It's always good to have friends that know how to do a lot of things. Well, isn't that the drag racing community, right? Isn't Isn't that just the definition of a group of people that get things done. So I, I hadn't heard that story, but uh, with Manny and, and with the circle of folks that you and I run in, I'm not surprised to hear it. Oh yeah, so just, that's great. just watching it unfold, I'm like, all right, well, this definitely drives home. And I've heard stories of before where racers have stepped up to help out with, you know, drainage issues at tracks around an excavating company where, you know, water is weeping through the track and they jumped on, you know, whatever excavator they could find and showed them, hey, we need to, you know, dig here to help get this water from draining under the track. And instead of wrenching on their car, they're out there, you know, running a front end loader to move a bunch of dirt. No, I love that. And, you know, the other one that comes to mind is uh, we're setting up a PRI webinar. I have one running today with our ambassador program talking about how we're working to get tracks open. But, Next week, we're going to bring Raleigh Miller in with Gene Bergstrom. We're going to talk about some of the technologies that racetracks can use. So they've developed the, the, the online ticketing. That would be something we've borrowed from other industries. But the, the touchless ET 
equipped. And I, I'm sure you've talked about this, but those are technologies that some racetracks have adopted quickly that others should at least be aware are out there. So we're going to explore that a little bit at PRI. But again, that's coming from the racer community. I love the creativity. I love the can-do attitude of, of drag racers. It's really good stuff. You, you mentioned the, that ambassador program a little bit in our pre-call. Why don't you talk about that? Because that's something that, that might be, you know, another thing that our listeners and racers could take advantage of somehow. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Um, look, uh, a lot of folks have been impacted by the pandemic. Uh, racetracks have been hit really hard. Like we talked about earlier, some of the tracks have found ways to get up and running, and a lot of that is the relationship they have with their local governments. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of tracks, uh, and I heard South Carolina today got hit real hard, got shut down, so our guys are working on that. But um, the tracks need help. It's as simple as that. And without tracks running, it sounds obvious, but we can't have racing. And the racers can't do what they love. We don't have manufacturers that are making new equipment. We don't have salespeople moving parts. So for us right now, the bottleneck is to get these racetracks back open. So to that extent, uh, PRI uh, flexing uh, our capabilities with our advocacy programs. Uh, we've hired three ambassadors. Uh, they are Tom Deary from the World of Outlaws and just an incredible lifetime in the circle track area. Gene Bergstrom with over 40 years at NHRA who now runs a big chunk of the pro media empire. Uh, and Frank Hawley, who was on your show uh, last week, which uh, I listened to Frank Hawley, just uh, it can drive anything down a drag strip as one in all types of vehicles. Uh, and, that, and I'm a graduate of Frank Hawley Drag School. He actually signed off on my NHRA license. So those three gentlemen uh, are teamed with our Washington, D.C. lobbyists uh, and lawyers are literally, Brian, going uh, state by state, track by track, finding them the hot spots and trying to help these folks. So, you know, we help Curtis Francois, uh, and Chris Blair set up the Illinois Coalition, Motorsport Coalition, as an example. Uh, we've we've written letters, we've positioned racing, we've done whatever we can to again have the conversation with local uh, government officials to to position racetracks in a different light than a crowded bar or uh, an outdoor concert where people are all over each other. Um, so that fight goes on. We're sharing that uh, at PRI. And the other thing uh, I should, no should note is we have a brand-new website at PRI, performanceracing.com. You'll find a special page in there for COVID-19 support, track operators, uh, sanctioning body uh, employees or officials or owners. You know, we've got a hotline set up for you. So if your track's been shut down, uh, we've got lawyers standing by 24 hours a day, you can get on the call with a PRI representative. Uh, we're going to do all we can to help these tracks. So that's going on 24-7, Brian. We're, we're in a fight right now for this industry to try to get these tracks back online. Uh, and the folks at PRI and, and this whole community are doing what we can. And a lot of it comes down to the individual racers. So get signed up for the, for the PRI newsletter You'll hear about where we need your help and write your government officials, call their office. Honestly, your voice will make a difference. Uh, and, and I can't stress this enough, man. We really need to stick together right now to make it through this. Oh, and totally. And I think that's one of the the, uh, the brotherhood of the racing cult culture across the board is good for that. And again, it, it's one of those things where as a media person – you know, it, it really has changed how I look and go to the track, and I pay a lot of, more of attention besides the cars on the track, but just the general environment. And one of the things I've noticed is that the level of positive emotion that motorsports brings out in fans and in, you know, the racers and their crews. You know, it, it trails last week, and I'm walking along, you know, through the staging lanes, and I see this dad He's got his three kids in tow, and they're, you know, pointing at the cars and loving it. And, you know, the dad's wearing an old-school racing shirt, and he's building that next generation of fans and racers because, you know what, that little boy's going to do when he goes to preschool. He's going to talk about the time that his dad took him to the track and how loud the cars are. You know, it, it's stuff like that, and being able to band together and keep this community going is what we all need to do and be positive more often 
and be good stewards of the, of the sport. Yeah, I love it, man. You're giving me chills. You know, I, I love it. Um, we, we've got to find those opportunities to share the experience of, of racing. It's such a wholesome activity. It, it does so many positive things for communities. And that's, that's part of the argument or the discussion that we have with folks that really don't understand racing. And, and there's, there's officials, some of them are, are great hearted people, but they just don't know that side of racing. So if you can just have a conversation, if you can share your experience, it goes a real long way. You know, Hey, my kids love going to the racetrack. We want to get it open. We go there 10 times a year, whatever your story is, you guys can make a difference. People listening to this right now can make a difference. They can get their local track open uh, and we can, we can get back to normal, right? We can uh, get our way through this. Oh yeah. And, and racing fans are 99.9% of the time. They just want to watch a race. They don't like it, it's so interesting to see the one. Tra- I hate to say it, the one track mind that we have is like we just want to go to the race, be left alone, be able to watch our race. That's it. Pet, spend the money to get in the door, buy our, you know, whatever you're going to drink. Literally, I saw this dude. I, I, you know, it was pretty hot here last weekend and I'm shooting on the starting line. I'm moving all around. I saw this dude that sat the entire time by himself with his cooler full of whatever and watched, I think, every pair go down the track. I don't even know if he got up to go to the bathroom. Every time I just happen, I noticed him right off the bat. I look up, I'm like, yeah. that dude has been here for 12 freaking hours. Has not moved. That's dedication. No, I loved it. Had a great day. Entertaining. You know, man, we're, look, we're at the age or we're, we're at the right time in our lives where we got to start looking about, you know, look at what racing's done for us. Look about, look at how great this, this sport has been to us. And it's, it's really our chance to give back. It's, it's a chance to help that guy in the stands. It's a chance to help that dad with his, with his kids, you know, to make sure the stuff is around. So, you know, I, I'd reach out to you, to you and your listeners, you know, find a, find a chance to give back. Maybe it's just volunteering at your local racetrack. You know, maybe it's getting on a council at PRI and helping lead the industry. You know, there's opportunities, uh, and I think the time is, is now for people to really act. Honestly, I think one of the biggest things that we can do as racers and as fans and it's going to sound simple and it might some people might get a little little huffity about this but don't be a jerk don't be a jerk on social media don't be the person that wants to bash everything you don't it it blows me away that a lot of racers and fans don't understand what goes into putting on an event and how you react to that event can help form people's opinions about it. Don't even go to it. And you might not know the whole story. Now, granted, not everybody's a saint. Not everybody's been an angel. Nothing is perfect. However, the sheer, you know, viciousness I see sometimes on social media, I'm like, guys, you're, you're not making this any easier to keep the sport going, even in a good year. You know, I'm, you're making me think about a time. I'm, I was at New York International. I was with my, my white 86 GT. I, I was in the trophy class, right? So I'm at the very bottom of anybody's list. And, and Bob Metcalf, the owner at the time, called me up to the tower. And, I, you know, I was a little nervous. I didn't know what I'd done wrong. And uh, he said, hey, uh, I had a guy calling sick. Can I give you a headset? Could you pull the staging lanes for me? And I'd been to the track, you know, several dozen times. And I kind of knew how it ran, but I had never worked for the track. Uh, but I'll tell you, working the staging lanes that day, and I did it for a couple rounds of, of uh, qualifying or time trials before they dialed in, but um, gave me a chance to look at it. Exactly what you're saying. Think about the other person first. And, and, you know, and, and I, as the president of PRI, I want to add great value to the racing community, great value to everybody's lives. Uh, and, and maybe it's a chance for other people to do that. If it's just, you know, class it up and be polite on social media, or maybe it's a chance for you to volunteer at the racetrack or, you know, go with your buddy to the racetrack or help your buddy get to PRI, you know, find a way to give back to this community. There's lots of opportunities out there. Oh yeah. Like I said, just helping out, you know, there's been times where, you know, I've been shooting events and, you know, the water box guy got called off to do something. The next pair's rolling up. They need water in the box grab the hose, throw some water down, you know, pick up things you see laying on the ground, you know, just those little things really help out. Like I said, just, I think it's just, it speaks globally to how we need to act more as humans. Just, 
be nicer to each other because it just makes the world go a lot better, especially at a racetrack. Yeah, I, I really like that, man. And I'll, I think we should all take that to heart. Um, look, we're going we're gonna to keep trying uh, at PRI uh, to do the best we can for this industry. Um, you know, can we hold the show this year? We think we can. We'll try to make it the best for everybody. There's probably going to be a lot of online virtual uh, additions or supplements. Um, but again, whatever it takes to keep us rolling, to keep us looking forward, uh, I'm there with you, pal. We're going we're gonna to be in this together. Well, Dr. Meyer, our time is uh, coming to a close here, and I'd like to give my guests their opportunity to channel their Energon Force and tell people where they can learn more about them and their sponsors and everything else. So uh, I'll turn the floor over to you, and you can tell people where they can learn about more PRI and everything else. Yeah, well, well, first of all, thank you. I really appreciate what you're what you're doing here and, and sharing a lot of knowledge about drag racing. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and, and your listeners. So, uh, look, you can find out more uh, about PRI at performanceracing.com. We've got a renewed effort on our social media channels. John Shaquille, our director of marketing, is heading that up. We brought Justin Sessler on board, so check out our social channels. Uh, we're performance uh, racing on Facebook. Uh, we're my PRI show on Instagram. Uh, and look, uh, stay tuned to PRI. Sign up for uh, our newsletter. We'll get you more information about the show. Uh, and I'm going to start doing some weekly webinars. I hope I hope you'll be watching, Brian. Uh, and uh, we'll uh, we'll hopefully see everybody in Indianapolis in December at the greatest racing trade show in the world, PRI. There you have it, folks. Uh, we'll see you soon, Dr. Meyer. Thank you, pal. Well, that wraps up the show for this week. Thanks for Dr. Meyer for stopping by. And as always, may your action times be crisp and your wind lights bright. Until next week, folks.